Sunday. So is this my last Sunday? <laughs> Does the search committee have something to tell us? No, that's a beautiful piece. Two weeks after the resurrection, we come to the story of Thomas. When it was evening on that day, and that would be the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, and that would be their Sunday, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and reach out your hand and put it in my side. And do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that through believing, you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. There's a majestic statue of Thomas in the Arch Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. This is the church considered 
to be the Pope's church, older than St. Peter's, the oldest of the basilicas in Rome. And many of you may have been there when you go into the church, you see 12 majestic statues of the apostles, Matthias replacing Judas. And there's also a statue of the apostle Paul, which is interesting. These statues are 15 to 20 feet tall, and when you stand under them, they just absolutely overwhelm you. They're some of the most majestic art you will ever see anywhere. We came to Thomas's statue, and I noticed that he's not depicted as a person of doubt. Like we often call him, what do we call him? Yeah, well, you won't anymore after this sermon. We, Catherine and I stood there under his statue, and I noticed three symbols attached to him. One was a set square, you know, the triangles used in drawing for mechanical drawing and for engineering. The other was a dove, and then there was the cross. It just struck me that Thomas is here among these other 11 as not a doubter, but as a person of faith. And the more I thought about it, I thought there's nowhere in the Bible that says that Thomas was a builder, nor an architect or an engineer, so why the set square? Well, I went to where every good theologian goes to try to discover an answer to a question. I went to Google. I couldn't find any real reason why that set square is on that statue. But one theory struck me as making more sense than the others. If Thomas was not a builder, and we have no proof that he was, some say even he might have been a fisherman, that set square may be there to symbolize Thomas's need for accuracy and proof. That's what he brought to the, deta- to the table of the disciples. And then it occurred to me that there are a lot of people living in this world today with a set square. They don't buy this Christianity stuff because there's not enough proof. And I understand that mindset. Thomas missed Jesus showing up on the night of the resurrection. He was resurrected, or they discovered his resurrection at dawn. So this is in the evening of that same day, which was Sunday, which is the equivalent for them of our Monday morning, because their Sabbath is Saturday. So after their Sabbath, their Monday morning, or it was actually Sunday, The women discovered the empty tomb at dawn, and on that evening, Jesus shows up in probably what was the upper room to where the disciples were locked up in fear 
that they've crucified our leader and we're next. We're next. He comes in some sort of not human fashion and yet he seems to be human and all of that is fodder for the skeptic, I know. And yet he has maintained the scars in his hands and in his side as proof that I am who I say I am. Thomas missed that meeting. Now this is what happens when you skip church. Something very important may happen and you're not here. He identified himself to the ten disciples. Judas has hung himself after his betrayal and not been replaced by Matthias yet. And Thomas is not there, so we have ten disciples in this room, including Peter, who doubted or uh, denied Jesus at the trial. Jesus does a weird thing. He breathes on them. Something about the breath of God. He distills something on them that they don't have. He empowers them with a spirit that doesn't belong to them. He equips them to be a church. In that moment, he empowers them to be different men than what they were before he entered that room. A week later, Jesus shows back up in that same room. Seven days later, he comes back to that same room. And in between, the disciples have told Thomas, who missed church, What had happened to them? We received the breath of the Holy Spirit came upon us and he came into the room and he identified himself. And Thomas said, unless I get what you got, I'm not going to be where you are. Now, I personally don't find anything wrong with that. Thomas needed the same thing they got. They weren't men of great faith. They weren't giants in the spiritual world. They were squirrely little guys hiding behind the door in fear of being killed. So all Thomas said was, unless I get what you've got, I won't be where you are. Interesting, when he comes back to church the next week and Jesus enters the door and says, peace be with you, the first thing Jesus does is turn to Thomas. Note what he says to him and what he doesn't say to him. He turns to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And reach out your hand and put it here in my side. I don't want you to doubt anymore. I want you to believe. Now that's a very loving thing to do. I mean, Jesus could have come into the room and said a couple of things. Thomas, I'm so disappointed in you. I called you to be a disciple. I thought you had a lot of potential. Where were you last week? You skipped church. Were you playing golf? Where were you? 
I came and gave the spirit to the disciples and you're not here. Now you're here. Look, Thomas, I I don't have room in my organization for a doubter. I don't have room in the church for a skeptic. So thank you for your services. You're dismissed. Why not? Why not do that? Thomas the doubter. And instead, Jesus comes in the room and says, come here, Thomas. I want you to get whatever it is you need. You need proof? Here's proof. I want you to move, Thomas. I want you to move from being that skeptic doubter who's on the outside, and I want you to move to a believer who's on the inside. I want you to make a change. Folks, that's grace to the skeptic. That's grace to the skeptic in me and in you. That's grace to the doubter in you and in me. That's the love of God that tolerates us. Come here, Thomas. You're worth salvaging. Come here, Thomas. You're worth keeping. I know there's something in you of great value and I want to retrieve it. You ever felt that way towards a son or a daughter of yours? One that's gone astray? I know there's something of great value in you. You don't even know it, but I know it. Come here, Mike, Sally, Tommy, Jane, come here. I want you to be the person I called you, excuse me, to be. This is a loving act that Jesus does with Thomas. We've missed it in calling him Doubting Thomas. Thomas needed to experience what they experienced. He needed to know the resurrected Christ. He needed more than a church meeting, and so do you. And so do I. He needed to know Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. It's not enough to be a student of Christianity, is it? To read the Bible as literature, to read it from Genesis to Revelation several times, to come to Bible studies over and over and over again, to know all kinds of data and minutia about the Bible. That's not of great help to the world, actually. We need to know the risen Christ. The one the Bible points to. It's like reading the history of Thomas Jefferson close to our hearts. But you read the history of Jefferson and yet you never knew the man. And so you study the details of his life but you never knew his life. The church cannot afford to study Jesus We need to know Jesus. We need to know him. And he's either resurrected or he's not. It's one or the other. If he's not, then this is all a colossal waste of time. If he is resurrected, we need to get into this room 
And we need that breath breathed upon us. I would make the case today to drop the phrase doubting Thomas and to begin to call him searching Thomas. In fact, if Jesus were standing here right next to me and I were to call him doubting Thomas, I would imagine Jesus would look at me and say, you say that one more time, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. I retrieved Thomas. I gave Thomas the evidence that he needed. And did you notice this in the story I read to you this morning, that Thomas never put his finger in the wounds of Christ's hands? He never put his hand in the side of Christ because he didn't need to anymore. He didn't need to have the evidence. He needed the experience of Christ himself. And isn't that true for all of us? Don't we need what Thomas needed? In the 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that name, I hope, the theologian, German theologian who opposed Hitler and Hitler had the church under his belt, except for this group with Bonhoeffer. And Hitler had um, Bonhoeffer hung just before the war was over. It's kind of the la- one of the last tragedies, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In 1930, he lectured at Union Seminary in New York, not in Richmond, and Bonhoeffer made this kind of bone-chilling statement. He said, in American theology, Christianity is still essentially religion and ethics. Because of this, the person and work of Jesus Christ must sink into the background and in the long run remain misunderstood because it is not recognized as the sole ground of radical judgment and radical forgiveness. That's awful. The person and work of Jesus Christ must sink into the background, said Bonhoeffer, not because he thought it should but because as long as we remain a mere religion and a bag of ethics without the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have no option but for Christ to sink into the background. That is a church with structure but no power. Form and no substance. Have we reduced the Christian faith? Think with me for a moment. You're here this morning. God bless you for getting up and coming to church. And for those of you listening online, but think think a minute. Do you think in America we've reduced the church to mere religion and ethics? Have we morphed the church 
to some kind of religious club that nobody wants to belong to anymore? Where they pay their dues and show up to the meetings, form without substance? Without knowing the resurrected Jesus Christ, the one that Thomas kept pushing to know, we are but a nonprofit charitable organization that has good intent, but very little power or purpose to transform the world. Could that be why the church is shrinking in membership across America? Because people see us and think that is a museum, one to which I don't need to belong or be a patron. I need something that transforms and changes. You know what? I need to experience the resurrected Christ. Isn't that what Thomas said? Isn't that what the millennials are saying? Don't they have the voice of Thomas? Is it a bad thing? to want to experience something powerful and meaningful and to not be a part of something that has lost its way. Oh, I think not. If the American church has any reason to stay open, it is not because we are good people, nor because we make society a better place because we're here. Do we make Richmond a better place because we're on this corner? And you no longer need a church for a wedding. Most churches are doing fewer and fewer weddings and they're all off-site and they're done in secular arenas. They don't need us for their wedding. They get their friends to be the justice of the peace. Nor does the world need us for a funeral. Most people are cremating their loved ones and having what is equates to a wake, where they gather someplace that had meaning and purpose to that person, i.e. not a church. And in that place, a golf course or a bar or a pub or, um, you know, bowling alley or whatever, they lift up the ashes of John and talk about what a great guy he was. And there is no Jesus, there is no salvation, there is no grace of God, there's no church. This is going on in America. Because people look at the church and I'm wondering if it's just because they don't see the resurrected Christ here. then Bonhoeffer is right. If the church has any reason to stay open, it is because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who though crucified, got up from the dead to forgive the sins of the world. That is our business. I used to envy the guy at the cleaners in Charlotte, and he would be aghast if he knew I was mentioning him in a sermon in Richmond, Virginia, online. But Kenny, 
born in India. And I would go to the cleaners to drop off my shirts, and it would take me a half hour to get out of there because he had to rant and rave about Obama. He absolutely hated him. And I had to listen to that for 30 minutes. And then finally, I'd get out of there and come back. And one day I said, Kenny, I envy you. He said, why? Why you envy me? You're a minister of a large church, and uh, why would you envy a, clean, a guy at the cleaners? And I said, because I come in here with my clothes, and they're dirty. And I put them on your counter, and you clean them. And I come back and give you money, and you give them back to me. And he said, so what? I said, because that is so clear what you do. You don't try to sell me coffee. You don't try to sell me tires. You don't try to sell me a car. You do cleaning. I wish, Kenny, that the church was as clear about what she does in this world as you are clear about my cleaning. And then he went on to rant and rave about Obama. It is our business. What is our business? If it's not the resurrected Jesus Christ showing up behind the locked doors and minds of people's hearts in this world and transforming them as Christ transformed Thomas that day. What is our business if we are just running a religious club with covered dish dinners? That is mindless work that has no power to transform human life. And that church needs to die. Because that church has no power. The church is offering a relationship with the risen Christ. Everything hinges on him. We're not just asking the world to behave itself or to be inclusive of everybody or to take social action on behalf of the poor. Those are all worthy purposes. But we are powerless to do those things or to sustain them without the person of Jesus Christ, the breath of his spirit. We've got to get into that room or we will die. Funerals are going to kill the church. Unless this breath shows up. Thomas left that room a different man, not because he had thought through it or, you know, read a book on theology and said, oh, now, yeah, I get it. No, that wasn't it. He left that room a different man, not because he was pious or a person of great faith. Shoot, he missed the church on the day of the resurrection. That's the one day you want to be here. No, the reason why Thomas left that room a different man was because he encountered Christ. That's the only reason anybody ought to come into this room. The rest of it's fluff. If the music doesn't point to him, it's powerless music. If the preaching doesn't point to him, it's powerless preaching. If the buildings don't produce things that honor and glorify him, then they're powerless buildings. If the budget is $6 million, but it doesn't accomplish anything, it's a powerless $6 million. 
Thomas was the first person in the Bible to call Jesus God. Did you know that? He didn't touch those wounds. Those wounds touched him. And he said this, my Lord and my God. That is a profession of faith. Thomas moved. He shifted. He called Jesus God. And his statue is there in Rome with all the others. Not a doubter. No, no, no. A man of great faith. It was personal. And maybe that's why there was a dove on that statue. I thought about that later. Why a dove? Because maybe Thomas experienced the peace of God in Jesus Christ. If Thomas were here today, and for all I know, he is. I think he would say, bring your set square. Ask all your questions. Christ will sustain you. Thanks be to God.